You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Skeptics took to the streets recently and threatened a mass overdose. We are handing out samples of this homeopathic remedy that we prepared ourselves and so people can drink it. It was in protest of the practice of homeopathy. Each participant took a beaker of the highly diluted remedy and drank it. We'll find out what happened next and what drove this demonstration as we examine the ancient practice still used today of homeopathy, which, by the way, in Greek means similar disease. I'm Seth Shostak. And I'm Molly Bentley. Welcome to Skeptic Check, our monthly look at critical thinking on Are We Alone? We'll get to street skeptics, Greek etymology, potions, and protests in a moment. But first, we'd like to begin Skeptic Check by taking our cerebella for a joyride, brains on vacation. But brains aren't totally on vacation this month. They've simply got their feet up. The claim by astronomers of the existence of another planet in our solar system is exciting news, a massive planet called Tyche. Did I say claim? Because a claim actually needs to be verified. Turns out this story is a mix of real science, public misunderstanding, and media hype. Phil, people talk about planets beyond Pluto, but there's news that there might be a really massive planet beyond Pluto. What's the deal here? Yeah, might be, might be. That's the key here. Here's the deal. The Independent, which is a UK newspaper, reported that there are two astronomers, John Matisse and Dan Whitmire, who think that there might be a giant planet way out in the solar system, way past Pluto. And by giant, I mean like Jupiter-sized. This is not a crazy idea. I've actually looked into this years ago when I was working on Hubble. We see other stars with planets this far out, and so it's possible we have one as well. It would be so far away that it would be really faint and hard to see. So how do you find something like that? Well, what Matisse and Whitmire have done is they've looked at comets. Comets come from the outer solar system. And if there's a giant planet out there, it would be messing up their orbits. And we might be able to see sort of like the footprint of this planet in those orbits. All right, Phil. So they've made a prediction based on the motions of comets. I mean, that's perfectly legitimate. We found Neptune because of its influence on Uranus's motion. So there's plenty of historical precedent for that. It's Newtonian physics. Could we actually see the planet? Why, if it's so big, haven't we seen it? The problem is, even if it's big, it is so far from the sun that it reflects very little light, and so it's incredibly faint. And it's moving very, very slowly. So even taking pictures of the entire sky day after day may not show the motion of this planet. However, if it's warm, if it's giving off a little bit of its own heat, like some planets do, it could be detected in the infrared. And NASA has a satellite called WISE, which might be able to see it. It might already be in the data. Why haven't we swung the telescope in that direction and taken a look? Well, WISE is a survey instrument. So what that means is it sweeps over the entire sky, and that data is just sent back to the Earth. And there's huge reams of this data. It's actually hard to go through. It doesn't just point at an object like Hubble does, and then you just look at that picture. So it takes time to sift through all of this data. And it could take a couple of years before something like this, if it exists, is found. However, this is being reported as scientists now believe the proof of the planet's existence has already been gathered. And Gizmodo, another popular website, said that data already captured by NASA's WISE may prove this planet's existence. 
the way the media are reporting this give this idea more credence than it has. And I don't want to say that this planet doesn't exist. It very well might. But the key word here is might. I can't blame the media for wanting to report on a story like this as long as they're honest and fair about it. And the original article was okay. But, you know, like I said, you, you walk away from reading this thinking that planet is really out there. But when you have journalists who maybe aren't that familiar with the science and maybe in a hurry, they leave the word might or probably or could out of the article. And it makes it sound like this thing is really out there. Well, I think the interesting thing here is that a lot of people think that there's kind of a killer planet by the name of Nibiru that might come through the inner solar system and wreak havoc and destruction. Yeah, this was sort of the head banging against the desk moment for me when I was reading about this. There are people out there who think that there is a planet X, which they've called Nibiru from ancient mythology, that orbits the sun every 3,600 years, sweeps through the inner solar system, knocks the planets in a loop, and causes all kinds of destruction. And this is total nonsense. It's completely wrong. You can't have a planet on that orbit that, first of all, we've never seen before, and second of all, would come through the solar system, do all this havoc, and leave without really leaving a trace of evidence. All the planets in the inner solar system orbit the sun in their nice, really wonderful orbits. There's no evidence that they've been disturbed for the, you know several million years. So this whole Planet X, this whole Nibiru thing, is really just silliness. Tyche, this purported giant planet in the outer solar system, even if it exists, and we don't know that, but even if it does exist, would be on an orbit tens of thousands of years long and keeps it way out in the outer solar system. So there's really no tie-in to this mythological planet of Nibiru except in people's imaginations. Phil Plate, thanks very much for talking with me. Thank you, Seth. Phil Plate is a skeptic. His excellent website is badastronomy.com. <laughs> Okay, Molly, we're going to start with this. Okay, so you have a jug of water here. Right, that's right. All right. Okay, and then this. This is what a is that? tiny bit of mercury, but it's a trituration of mercury, of quicksilver. That is, it's finely, finely ground mercury. Okay, still be careful with it, though, because mercury is very poisonous. Well, I, I, I do know that. We need both, however, for our homemade homeopathy brew. Now, we're not homeopaths, but we are going to try to follow the basic principles, right, Seth? Yep. Now, homeopathy has been called a form of alternative medicine, that is, medicine that doesn't fall within the purview of conventional medicine. Its proponents claim that it can treat all sorts of illness and disease that one might see a conventional doctor for, migraine, ear infection, gout, bladder infection, stroke, and so forth. Right. Okay. So to begin, I'm going to take one part of this triturated mercury okay. and put it in 10 parts of water by volume. Right You're going to put it in that vial there? Yep. Yep. Here it is. Okay. okay. Then you need to add water, right? Yeah. It's right up to the line. Okay. Now, you need to shake that a lot. Okay. There's a way to shake it. Before oh. you begin shaking, I'm yeah. going to tell you, and then you can do it. So you have to go up and down first, then side to side, and then back and forth. Okay. Well, wait a minute. So up and down, and now side to side. doesn't matter how long I do this. And now front and back. Right. Okay. By the way, some history on homeopathy as I get the shakes here. It uh, started over 200 years ago with a German physician, Samuel Christian Hahnemann, at the end of the 18th century. It's hard to talk and shake, isn't it? It's like, I don't know, rubbing your stomach and patting your head or something. Now, take one part of that diluted solution, and you need to mix it with 10 parts water. So just take one ounce out of what you have there and put right. it in this new beaker here. Okay, so I'm putting one-tenth in that new beaker, and, and, and now what? You okay, just, now you need to add water, or maybe oh, I can add the water here. 10, so. Right, so now, now you fill it up again. Okay, so now I'm going to add another 10 ounces of water, ah. so it's been diluted another factor of 10 to 1. You know, all of this was before the development of modern medicine. I mean, medical so-called cures were kind of hit or miss more than 200 years ago, and that's because the chemical that a doctor would give you to clear up your symptoms might clear them up all right by killing you. Can you please shake that? You need to shake that again. All right. Okay. okay. So up and down. Side right. It's the side. same shaking routine. Yeah. Right. Okay. 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 We're kind of doing a quick job on this. Now you take one part of that solution, you repeat what we just did, mix it with 10 parts of water again. So this is the third dilution ah. of 10 to 1. 
All right. So now I'm going to start shaking it. Okay. So what is the what is the dilution? Well, now? it's you know ten times ten times ten. We've got one part mercury to a thousand parts water. You know, Hahnemann wanted to help people who couldn't afford doctors with something that wouldn't kill them. This was before anybody knew about germs, antibiotics, even had seen a red blood cell in a microscope. So this diluted solution is what he wanted to use. Well, you can stop shaking now, I think. Good job. Now, a principle of homeopathy is the law of minimum dose. That means that the lower the dose of medication, the greater the effectiveness. The active substance, as we've shown here, is highly diluted. But Seth, if we were to make a proper homeopathic remedy, uh, we'd have to do, what, 20 stages of dilution with this mercury. So what, about 17 times more? Yeah, that's right. Okay, so we would keep repeating the process that we've been doing here. We take out one ounce of our diluted mercury solution, add another 10 ounces of water, keep shaking, and keep doing that, as you said, what, 17 more times, right? Right. And some homeopathic remedies are produced by serial dilution up to 30 times. So that's one part ingredient in a thousand billion, billion, billion parts of water. In a case like that, there's not likely to be a single molecule of the original active ingredient remaining, which I suppose in this case would be good since mercury is so poisonous. Now, as the substance is being diluted, one performs succussion. The homeopaths define succussion as serious shaking. But was that the original definition of the word? No. The original use of the word was to describe the wrapping of the container against a hard but elastic object, such as a leather-bound book, and Hahnemann would have used a Bible. The belief was that in the shaking process, some information or dynamic force from the original substance is passed to the diluted remedy, and that's what's supposed to cure you. And another principle of homeopathy is that like cures like. Now, in conventional medicine, if you go to the doctor with diarrhea, say, you might get a medicine that will constipate you. That's the principle of the opposite. But in homeopathy, where like cures like, you are given a very, very small dose of an herb that would give you diarrhea under other conditions and under stronger potency. So if you have a disease that causes symptoms that are like mercury poisoning, say. Yeah, nausea, swollen tongue, rings around your eyes, swollen gums, stuff like that, pretty nasty. And mercury is what we've been using here. Then you might take our mixture, our highly diluted mixture here, to alleviate those symptoms. It sounds paradoxical. And now that we have an idea how a homeopathic remedy is made, as Seth and I have done here, let's find out more about how it works. Seth turned to Iris Bell, a psychiatrist and researcher in alternative medicine. Meanwhile, I'll clean up some of the water here. Iris, one of the defining phrases that's used to describe homeopathy is like cures like. Maybe you could explain to me what that means. In basic principle, it means that something that could cause a pattern of symptoms in a healthy person might be able to reverse those same symptoms in a person who is sick with that pattern. And so in that sense, it is something capable of causing similar symptoms. How is it then that like cures like? What is the idea of that? There's probably some similarity to a phenomenon that has been well documented in the field of toxicology, which is called hormesis. In hormesis, a low level of a substance, which can cause a certain effect at a higher amount, actually stimulates the body's defenses to change the way they deal with that higher amount. And again, this is not identical to homeopathy, but it is the same basic idea. For example, a chemotherapy agent kills certain kinds of cells. If you keep going to lower and lower doses of that chemotherapy agent, that chemotherapy agent would be protective of those cells. It would not kill them. It would cause a protection of those cells from damage. If I understand this correctly, what you're saying is that actually the cure is affected by the body. You're stimulating the body to cure itself of whatever the condition is by providing an agent that creates the same sorts of symptoms in that body, but at a very low dosage. Yes. And there are animal studies with homeopathic remedies demonstrating that if you give a homeopathic remedy before the injury occurs, you may even get an increase in the symptoms that are seen when the injury is made in an experimental way. If you give the same remedy at the same dose after the injury has developed in the organism, it causes a reduction in the severity of the injury. If I have a stomach ache, there could be, I assume, a whole slew of things that might have caused that stomach ache. So how does a homeopath decide which treatment to give when the symptom can point backwards to so many possible causes? The body has a certain repertoire of symptom pictures that it can present from a wide range of causes. 
say there were a viral exposure available to 10 people by someone sneezing in a crowded area. Not all 10 people will get a cold, and anybody who does get a cold will manifest that cold in slightly different ways. It is those slightly different ways which have been developed into a form of clinical observation within the field of homeopathy to choose between one remedy and another for the symptom picture. As a homeopath, when I walk in with my stomachache, what do you do? I ask you to tell me more details about that stomachache. What makes it better? What makes it worse? Are there certain circumstances that were present in your life at the time the problem of this symptom appeared? Some people might become irritable. Some people might become very needy and clingy and want someone else there. Someone may find that cold water makes that stomachache feel better or hot water makes that stomachache feel better. Those are the kinds of things a homeopath wants to know. It's a symptom picture of the patient that guides the homeopath to what the treatment is. One of the things that's truly extraordinary about homeopathy, and many people comment on it, is the extreme dilution of the substance that's being, you know, mixed up here. It is not just dilution that is done in preparing a homeopathic remedy properly. Every dilution step is accompanied by multiple succussions. Succussions are very vigorous, intense shaking, if you will, of the solution in the container that it's found in. The basic science research evidence related to that combination of dilution and succussion has made it very clear you do not end up with a solution that is identical to a plain solvent. You do not end up with something that is in fact lacking evidence that it has been altered by the original presence of the source. If you just keep diluting something, that is the case. If you shake it and cause intense turbulence in the solution, you actually cause a colloidal kind of dispersion of nanoparticles of the substance. How does that work? I mean, it would seem to me that if you shake it, all you do is ensure that, you know, the molecules are more or less equidistantly dispersed in the water base. The data do not support that assumption. When you prepare something that way, and you then disrupt the order in the solvent, which has been created by this preparation process, you will find a documentable release of heat, and you will find a documentable release of light that indicate there has been an order, in other words, there has been some structuring of the molecules in the solution, which has been created by this process. In addition to that, if you do transmission electron microscopy, you will find identifiable nanoparticles of the original source material in the solution. So it's twofold. One, some of the original material is still in there. And secondly, the water in some way has memory. It's not that the water has memory. It's that a network of the solvent molecules has been created that is dynamical. And so the individual molecules contributing to that network may be constantly in motion and moving. So we're not talking about modifying water or a molecule of water, which is a common misconception among the skeptics. We're talking about creating a network of water molecules for which, again, there is a great deal of evidence in the material science world and water chemistry world. Is homeopathy regulated by the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA? Yes. And in what sense? Because it's sold as an over-the-counter. It's available over-the-counter, although not all potencies and not all remedies are available over-the-counter. So that requires that it not be demonstrated to be harmful in any way. For prescription medications, the FDA would require not only that they not be harmful, but also that they have demonstrated efficacy. Correct. Uh, Correct. Some sort of double-blind proof of effect. Has such testing been done for homeopathic remedies? Yes. And... For some conditions, there is evidence that it is effective, and in others, there is not. There are also very large-scale studies on thousands of patients in Europe who have been treated with homeopathy versus standard care, and generally speaking, homeopathy has been very successful, at least equivalent in outcomes and often better than conventional medicine in primary care settings. Now, does it work for every condition in every patient? Of course not. Is it better than conventional medicine? It's just different than conventional medicine. Well, Iris Bell, thank you very much for talking with me. Thank you. Iris Bell is a psychiatrist and researcher in alternative medicine at the Arizona Center for Integrative Medicine. Up next, the public protest that the Center for Inquiry led against homeopathy. This is Skeptic Check on Are We Alone? But don't take our word for it. 
Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back to Skeptic Check on Are We Alone? We're examining the claims of homeopathy. Homeopathic remedies don't go down well with everyone. Jim Underdown from the Center for Inquiry, Los Angeles, for one, wants to keep his medical advice rooted in the 21st century. No offense, Samuel Christian Hahnemann. The one nice thing I'll say about Sam Hahnemann, the German doctor who invented homeopathy in the late 1700s, is that he was right to be troubled about medical procedures of his day. Doctors at that time were unknowingly killing many of their patients, patients who might have lived if the doctors had left them alone. If my doctor was going to prescribe blood-sucking leeches, I'd probably take my chances with the disease. So Hahnemann invented homeopathy, which did less harm than some medical practices of his time because it didn't do anything except make people think they were being helped, which ain't bad for the 18th century. But here we are in the 21st century. Do homeopathy's central principles stand the test of 200 years' time? Take the law of infinitesimals, the idea that the smaller the amount, the stronger the effect. What if my coffee shop on Hollywood Boulevard applied this law to my morning brew? If I pay two bucks for the high octane and the barista hands me a cup of coffee that I can see through, we will have a problem. If my local pub tries the same thing with whiskey and water, my night isn't looking too good either. But Hahnemann's laws aside, one of the reasons supporters of homeopathy recommend it is because it's 200 years old. It's not wine. Medical practices don't age well. But let's run with this nostalgia for life 200 years ago for a second. Imagine you climb onto your horse-drawn buggy and, oops, step on a rusty nail. You get tetanus because no vaccine's been invented yet. Then it turns gangrene. Antibiotics are many decades off as well. The cut swells and oozes until the only way to treat you is to lop off your lower leg. You hope the amputation goes quickly, but it's performed with unsterilized instruments. After all, no one knows what a germ is yet, and you are awake for the whole thing. Anesthesia? No dice. That comes years later. And it's all performed under the flickering light of a lantern filled with whale oil. Sounds a bit rough, doesn't it? But all those treatments were the state of the art of medicine around the time Sam Hahnemann invented homeopathy. Nostalgia is fine when it comes to baseball and ice cream, but when it comes to medicine, give me a clean scalpel in the year 2011 every time. Jim Underdown is the executive director for the Center for Inquiry, Los Angeles. While homeopathy grows in popularity, its critics are becoming more vocal. And visible. On the sidewalk in downtown San Francisco in February 2011, members of the San Francisco-based skeptic groups Reason for Reason and Center for Inquiry San Francisco gathered on California Street holding laboratory beakers. They were prepared to overdose on homeopathic brew. It was a stunt, not a scientific experiment, but their message was real. They hoped to draw attention to what they call pseudoscience. Their shirts read, homeopathy, there's nothing in it. The event was called 1023. Now that name refers to Avogadro's number, which is the number of molecules in a given amount of substance, a mole of it, if you remember your high school chemistry. The number is actually 6.022 times 10 to the 23rd, but the point is... If the dilution of even many grams of most substances exceeds that number, you have only a chance, really a small chance, that as much as a single molecule of the substance remains. The protest was held in front of the grocery and pharmacy Whole Foods, but the challenge was to many other pharmacies which also sell homeopathic remedies. And it wasn't a local protest. It coincided with demonstrations in the U.K. Some of the beakers were filled with a diluted mixture of coffea cruda, Coffea is the homeopathic remedy made from the coffee bean. It's taken to treat restlessness and, as it says here on the bottle that I bought, mental hyperactivity. Those are also the symptoms of having too much caffeine. Others chose to overdose in pill form. 
I'm Jay Diamond, and I'm with ReasonForReason.org. I helped organize this event, and we're going to be doing a massive overdosing of homeopathic remedy, he says with hand quotes, because of course there's nothing in it. This is completely bogus science. My name's Leonard Trammell, and last weekend we mixed up a rather large number of doses of homeopathic sleep aid, which strangely enough is based on coffee. So if you are suffering from being hyperactive or not being able to fall asleep, you should take something that makes you hyperactive and unable to fall asleep. My name is Elizabeth Cassell. I am the media contact for Reason for Reason for this 1023 campaign, and I am a student of chemistry at Berkeley. If it is water, essentially, what's the harm? The companies are marketing this as something safe for children. Parents, for obvious reasons, don't want something that's going to have side effects for their children. They want something safe. And it's true. In terms of side effects, homeopathy is safe. It's as safe as water. The problem is, is that these kids are being treated, but they're not being treated. Um, homeopathy, the problem with it is not that we don't know if it has an effect. There's just nothing there to have an effect. I disagree with that. The reason being is that she's saying it doesn't have an effect. It's the way that you approach homeopathic remedies. Can you give me your name, please? My name's Aaron. I was very sick to a point where I couldn't even get out of bed. And I went and I'm actually now getting to the point where my memory's coming back. I'm able to get up in the morning. Darren is saying that he felt better after taking homeopathy remedies. So there's a few reasons for that. Now you may have changed your diet, you may have gone through some other medical procedure that helped you, and you took homeopathic remedies in addition to that, but there's no way of knowing that those homeopathic remedies were what helped you. We're getting ready to do our 1023 overdose. We're going to hand out various uh, containers containing uh, doses of this material to uh, whoever wants it. We also have commercially produced homeopathic sleep aid with the same formula. Three, two, one, homeopathy, there's nothing in it! How did it go down? It went down like water. Well, it looks like everyone is still standing and no one's fallen over after drinking this homeopathy potion, a mix of coffee and water. So no ill effects from the overdose, Molly? No, not at all. But supporters of homeopathy say that this just proves that the remedies are safe. Now, the event was held in front of a Whole Foods store, as we said. The company calls itself America's Healthiest Grocery Store, and it does have an amazing selection of fresh fruits and vegetables, many organic, but it also has a homeopathic section. That's where I bought my bottle of coffee cruda and also borax, which is laundry detergent, yes, but in homeopathic form, it's used to treat mouth ulcers. That's what it says here on the bottle. The cost, $7.99 each. Now, we contacted Whole Foods to get their reaction to the protest and asked why they sell homeopathic medicines. They declined an interview but did issue a response. And here's an excerpt, quote, We offer homeopathic remedies at Whole Foods Market as a resource to customers who wish to use them. A growing body of research supports the efficacy of these remedies, and recent meta-analyses of earlier research suggest that homeopathy can be significantly more effective than a placebo, other studies have cast doubt on the efficacy of these remedies, so there's a clear need for further research in this area. We are unaware of any studies which have suggested that homeopathic remedies are harmful or dangerous, unquote. A full text of the response is on our blog. Now, science reporter Simon Singh disagrees that there's no harmful effect to homeopathic remedies. He claims people are paying good money for bad medicine. Americans spend $3 billion a year on homeopathy, and the expenditure is not confined to the United States, as the 1023 protest in the U.K. demonstrated. An author who has written about the Big Bang and other subjects in physics, Simon Singh has in recent years turned his attention to alternative medicine. The British Chiropractic Association sued him for libel after he criticized the efficacy of their practices. The suit was withdrawn by the chiropractic group in 2010. Simon Singh's most recent book is Trick or Treatment. Simon, your background is in physics, and in fact, the last time we talked to you, it was about the Big Bang. What was your motivation in writing this book and covering alternative medicine? There's so much misinformation about alternative remedies, whether it's Reiki or chiropractic or homeopathy or iridology, whether it's the BBC or the Internet or advertising. There are so many therapies, so much misinformation. Why don't we just look at the evidence? And as you say, my background's in physics, so I teamed up with a professor of complementary medicine, Professor Ed Zardern, and together we looked at all of the evidence. What do the hundreds and thousands of patients that have been involved in clinical trials, what do they tell us about these treatments? And so the book just tries to separate the good from the bad, 
the safe from the dangerous. I don't think we're ideologically anti-alternative remedies. I think we're just pro-evidence. Simon, I attended the 1023 mass overdosing here in the Bay Area in San Francisco, but I understand there was a partner to that happening at the same time or within 24 hours in the UK. What happened in the UK? I suppose the idea for the overdose came from a group of skeptics in Liverpool and Manchester, the Merseyside skeptics and the Manchester skeptics. And in fact, they did this last year. But this year, they thought they'd go one better. There were overdoses in front of the European Union Parliament in Brussels, in Australia, in Canada, in Argentina, even one lone overdose in Antarctica. So the idea this year was to really make a global demonstration of how utterly absurd the practice of homeopathy is. Now that it's over, what do you think was achieved by this protester? Some might call it a stunt. The first direct message that's going out to the general public is this is a treatment that has no active ingredient whatsoever. I think a lot of people think that homeopathy is like herbal medicine. It's some sort of natural herb-based product. However, the crucial thing with homeopathy is that you might start with a herb, you might start with an animal product, you might start with a crystal, you might start off with anything, but then you dilute it and you dilute it and dilute it and dilute it and dilute it over and over again to such an extent that the final remaining solution has no active ingredient left whatsoever. Not a single molecule of active ingredient remains. And that becomes the basis for creating homeopathic tablets. So we're literally talking about tablets with no active ingredient. If we can just get that one message across to the public, that's a real breakthrough. At one end, it sounds silly, but one of the battles that we're fighting in the UK at the moment are organizations like Homeopaths Without Borders, homeopaths that go overseas to developing countries or places where a cyclone has struck to try and offer help through homeopathy. Or we have organizations in Africa that are advocating homeopathy to treat HIV or malaria victims. So it goes from being scientifically absurd, scientifically laughable, to actually being medically dangerous. How come after a century of medical advance, we're still spending money and pinning our hopes on a treatment that should have been abandoned two centuries ago? There also have been clinical tests on homeopathy. I know you've reported on 200 or so in your book, Trick or Treatment, and you're not convinced that homeopathy works based on those trials. What did they find? The logic of homeopathy is bananas. How can a sugar pill with no active ingredient have any real effect other than a placebo effect. But if you're a medical researcher, you have to remain slightly open-minded. There are lots of anecdotal reports. It's a long history. It's widely used. So you have to test it. You have to say, right, whether or not it seems absurd, we must test it. So there have been 200 clinical trials covering a whole range of different conditions. And I think it's very fair to say that the overwhelming consensus is that there is no good evidence that homeopathy works for any condition whatsoever. So not only is there no reason it should work, there's no evidence that it works either. But Simon, what do you make of the anecdotal evidence then, the people who say that I took these pills or I took this substance diluted in this water and I got better? It actually relieved my symptoms. Those stories are very important. I mean, I've got a horrible cough and a cold at the moment. I could imagine myself getting to a point, well, I can't really imagine myself doing this, but I could imagine somebody else getting to the point where they're so fed up that their next-door neighbor says, hey, try homeopathy. The intervention happens at just the time that the body is picking up. And instead of attributing the recovery to the body's own natural healing mechanism, the patient says, wow, that homeopathy was amazing. Maybe it is effective, Simon, because maybe it's the placebo effect here. I mean, if I believe that either one of these pills will make me feel better... That's a pretty powerful incentive in my brain to help me heal myself, and that can't be dismissed. The placebo effect is good. Um, How good it is varies from patient to patient. It varies on the condition. It's unreliable. It may have a limited impact, but it's good. So I wouldn't want to dismiss it. However, the crucial thing is, do we accept a treatment that, from all the evidence tells us, is entirely placebo-based? What are the ethical issues with that? One of the ethical issues is that if I'm a homeopath and I'm trying to sell you this product and I'm going to get a placebo effect out of you, I have to mislead you. Now, do we really want to mislead patients 
in order to get a placebo effect out of them. Secondly, once you start allowing people to believe that homeopathy can really work for some small placebo benefit they may receive, it's not long before you end up with parents saying, well, why should we vaccinate our children? Why don't we get a homeopathic vaccination? That's much more natural, much safer. And people start moving away from effective treatments to ineffective treatments like homeopathy. The placebo effect should be a bonus on top of an effective treatment. How receptive is the British public to the message that homeopathy doesn't work? Or alternatively, how popular is homeopathy in the UK? Alternative therapies vary in their popularity, each according to its own country. So, for example, homeopathy is very powerful and very successful in Germany, where its inventor came from, Samuel Hahnemann. It's also very popular in France. Oddly, it's very popular in India. It's one of the very few Western alternative therapies that's been exported to the East. And that's because Indian young people couldn't train to be doctors during the British Empire. It was quite hard. And therefore, many of them turned to homeopathy as being almost a rebellion against orthodox medicine. And in England, we have a queen who's said to travel around with homeopathic pills all the time. We have Prince Charles, who's a strong, strong supporter, maybe the most famous supporter of homeopathy in the UK. We have hospitals dedicated to homeopathy, which are paid for by the government. And every high street drugstore will offer homeopathy. So that's why we just want to get this message across to the public, which is, you need to know what you're taking. And what is their response to that? Well, it's really impressive. There's been a gradual movement over the last, I would say, five years. There was a letter sent out to each of the local health spending authorities. And it simply said to each, how do you justify spending money on medicines with no evidence base? And since then, we've seen a radical drop in their spending. I mentioned there were some homeopathic hospitals. There were about five or six. One of them has now closed, and one or two more are on the verge of closing. And similarly, within Parliament, where a group of expert MPs examined the evidence for homeopathy, and they really did condemn the treatment very strongly. So now I think the government's got a strong decision to make. Does it encourage treatments based on evidence, or is it willing to throw money at sugar pills? Simon Singh, thank you very much for talking with us. My pleasure. Thanks a lot. Simon Singh is a science writer based in the UK. His book is Trick or Treatment, Alternative Medicine on Trial. Coming up, more on the power of the placebo, also our highly evolved yet dysfunctional brains, why we're not as rational as you'd hope after millions of years of evolution. It's skeptic check, but don't take our word for it. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When homeopathy seems to cure people of what ails them, some scientists chalk it up to the placebo response, as in, it's nothing but a placebo. Well, science writer Gordy Slack reminds us that the placebo effect is powerful and shouldn't be easily dismissed. First, do no harm is the essence of the Hippocratic Oath. Following that prescription, though, isn't as easy as it sounds. According to the Institute of Medicine, nearly 100,000 preventable deaths are caused each year by doctors' mistakes in the U.S. alone. Medicine is a tricky business, fraught with dangers. However, there is one practice most doctors employ that rarely, if ever, harms a patient, and it does a lot of good. According to a study published in the British Medical Journal, well over half of doctors give their patients placebos. Placebos are inactive substances, usually sugar pills, that have no intrinsic medical properties, but help anyway. Debate rages over how placebos work, but they seem to trigger or amplify the body's own healing mechanisms to boost immunity, reduce stress, and release opioids that quell pain. 
Many studies over the decades show placebo to be a substantial and real effect that can relieve symptoms of asthma, arthritis, hypertension, Parkinson's disease, depression, and many other conditions. Doctors use placebos because they want to help their patients. Placebos do help and without side effects, except one, patients become dupes. Doctors have understandably assumed that they'd have to lie to their patients, that they'd have to believe they were getting real drugs for placebos to work. But a recent study at Harvard Medical School found that placebos given to patients with irritable bowel syndrome worked well, even when they were administered honestly. This is just a sugar pill, the docs told their patients, but it could help you anyway. And about half the time it worked, and the patients got relief from their abdominal pain. Which brings us back to homeopathy. While skeptics cringe at the mention of it, the practice appeals to me for treating non-critical conditions. A good homeopath is a master of the placebo arts, employing all the techniques that science has shown to amplify the effect. Medical ritual, high patient expectation, focused clinical attention, and a bill. Yes, a bill. Placebo, like psychotherapy, works much better when people pay for it. Setting aside their questionable explanation of how homeopathy works, this is an ideal way to administer a placebo. Look, critics say homeopathy is no better than a placebo. I say, at its best, placebo is damn good medicine. The elephant in the clinic, whether the doctors or the homeopaths, is our ignorance about the potent mechanism that makes patients who take placebos get better. Research into the placebo response is a potential gold mine for doctors, psychologists, and everybody else who really wants to understand what makes humans tick. Gordy Slack is a science writer and keeper of the website on neuroscience, Brainstorm. Whenever people disagree, have heated arguments about anything, there's inevitably one side that thinks the other side is, well, nuts. It's sometimes hard to see another person's point of view or why we ourselves believe what we believe. I mean, we're usually so sure we're right and they're wrong. We've spoken to scientists on this program in the past about why it is that despite 10,000 generations of evolution and brain development, Homo sapiens are not always rational beings. We've heard from experts why we're wired to be irrational, see causality where it doesn't exist, and experience a powerful state of certainty even when we're wrong. So along comes research into another subject of non-logical thinking that caught our eye, hypocrisy. Never talk on the phone when driving. You warn your kids, but then you begin punching numbers into your phone as soon as you hit the highway. Always tell the truth, you say, while excusing that little white lie you told the boss about your weekend overtime. Why everyone else is a hypocrite is psychologist Robert Kurzban's book about why our brains work, rather, why your brain works the way it does, leading you to contradictory beliefs, impulsiveness, inconsistency, and gasp, an overinflated view of yourself. Hint, it has to do with the brain evolving piece by piece like a jigsaw puzzle. Rob, I think most people would define hypocrisy as holding others to a different standard than oneself and even recognize this behavior in themselves and in people they know. But what's remarkable about this? I mean, what's new in our understanding of hypocrisy? You could imagine a world in which we all walk around with a kind of little book in our head about what things are wrong. And if we look at that book and if we're going to do something, we don't do it. And if other people do it, we condemn it. If that were the case, if you sort of think of this as like a unitary phenomenon where there's one book of behavior, then hypocrisy would be something that we don't really see. But what I want to say is that what's really going on here is that one part of your mind is driving behavior and the other part of your mind is driving condemnation. And that's the key that modularity brings this kind of analysis, to break it out into different parts. There is another part that I want to pick up, which is that you said, look, we all sort of realize that we're inconsistent, we're hypocrites. I would I would challenge that with all, with all due respect. One of the things that we find in the research is that people are much less aware of their own inconsistencies and coherences and hypocrisies than they are of other people. And I think in that lies something which is really important about the way that we interact with one another. I have to say that I certainly uh, use four-letter expletives when I see somebody cruise through a stop sign. And yet, when I do it myself, of course, I rationalize that by thinking that I am able to do it safely and they may not be. 
Right, exactly. And I, and I think that's an important point. And then you can ask this question, well, why is that? And really in psychology, there's been sort of one traditional answer to that question, which is that, you know, you want to feel good about yourself. This is sort of a self-esteem model. I have a really different kind of answer, which is that when you recognize things about yourself that are bad, you run the risk of leaking that into the social world. If I know that I'm a bad ex, then maybe I might say it out loud or I might behave in that way. And other people who are forming an impression of me are going to act on that information, which gives me a disadvantage. But now suppose that that goes by unnoticed. In that case, I gain this sort of what I would call a strategic advantage of being ignorant of my own inconsistencies. If I don't notice that I'm inconsistent, other people might not notice that I'm inconsistent. So here I'm changing the framing from a question of why do I want to feel good about myself to how do I get advantages in the social world. Can you give me an example of how you might do that? I mean, you're at a party and you meet somebody you've never met before and uh, they ask you something and uh, you do a little bit of self-promotion. Yeah, and I want to be clear that I'm not saying people are lying. I think these are, to, to whatever extent you can call it a sincere belief, they are. One of my favorite studies in this respect is about, well, me, college professors. College professors routinely say, if you ask them, um, more than 70% will say that they're in the top half of all college professors in terms of their teaching skills. Something like um, half of them will say that they're in the top quartile. They can't all be right. There's definitely something that's wrong there. <laughs> And if I you know, sincerely believe that and I'm having an effect in the social world, particularly for these things that are difficult to verify, that could be an advantage. And again, I can't even be caught out lying because the belief is sincere. I think about this as sort of a propaganda system. Now, Rob, you have tried to analyze this behavior in terms of what you call the modular mind. And that sounds to me as if my brain is made of Legos. Can, can you tell me what the modular mind is? Yeah, I sort of think about this the same way people think about their smartphone. So your smartphone doesn't consist exactly of physical pieces all locked together, but it does have a lot of specialized applications. You know, you've got your navigational tools, which is important to me. Uh, you've got your stock ticker. You've got your Angry Birds application. Seems like everyone's got that. And each of those little, little applications has a job. And as an evolutionary psychologist, I think a lot about function. What are the different parts of the mind for? So it's not really about the spatial elements. It's about bringing together in one mind lots of different systems which have individual jobs. They're really good at those jobs, and together they give rise to the coherent whole or at least somewhat coherent whole. So in other words, our mind is a kind of patchwork quilt of software subroutines or, or, or functions, so to speak, each of which deals with another aspect of existence. Do these areas talk to one another? I mean, you know, is somebody in control here or is it anarchy in our minds? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that it's somewhere between someone being in control and anarchy. Minds do manage to function. We feel like coherent wholes. The different modules do talk to each other, but not perfectly. So there's lots of studies. There was a classic piece of work done by a couple of researchers who asked people to make decisions about pantyhose. People are able to do this. But then when you ask them what the basis for their decision is, people are unable to articulate why they chose one thing over another. Same thing for morality. Some great work by uh, John Haidt, who's a psychologist at the University of Virginia, has asked people why certain kinds of behaviors are wrong, and then he asked people to justify them, and they can't. And I think what that's telling us is that the parts of our mind that are making decisions, whether about morality or pantyhose, isn't passing on the information about how that decision is made to the part of our minds that does the talking. And so what that's telling you is that, yeah, we have all these different modular systems. Sometimes they talk to each other. Sometimes they're isolated from each other. So the origin of the hypocrisy is simply that we have uh, warring factions, if you will. I mean, maybe not warring because that sounds like they, they're interacting with one another at a different level, but that, you know, they're, they're different answers to the same questions. The same situation generates conflicting responses. Yeah, exactly. Conflicting responses is the key. They're not, as you say, warring. They're really cooperating. The trick is to figure out which system ought to be in control and guide behavior at any given time. Take the example of a decision that you're facing. You've got a piece of cheesecake that you can have for dessert, and you've got to think about whether you're going to eat it or not. You know, one part of your head is designed to gather calories and find calories rewarding, particularly in packages like cheesecake. Another part of your head is good at, at representing thinking about the future and uh, thinking about how uh, healthy you're going to be, how much extra time you're going to have to spend on the treadmill. And those two little application subroutines, they're both useful. And they have goals, but those goals sometimes can, can run into conflict. So how did this modular mind uh, come about? I mean, this sounds like a very poor way to design a thinking system. It sounds like sort of a bottom-up approach. I mean, if you were building, trying to build a thinking machine, you wouldn't do it this way. You wouldn't have competing modules. 
Well, that's exactly right. And of course, the way that our minds evolved, there wasn't the opportunity to start from scratch and build it up. So what evolution did is added lots of different components as the need arose. That is to say, the components that solved some problem that our ancestors faced, those were the ones that were successful. So it is jury-rigged. It is uh, going to have lots of different inconsistencies in it, some little problems, some bugs, and so on. That's totally true. In terms of flexibility, though, the nice thing about modules is that they can combine in lots of interesting ways, and that actually produces flexibility. If you think about software programming, if you think about how people are writing really sophisticated pieces of code, they do it in a modular way. They add subroutines so that those subroutines can then be called by other routines, and this can be recursive, this can be combinatoric, and so on. So, you know, you've got two different things going on. Evolution's building things gradually from what it had to work with, and second, modularity, lots of pieces working together can in fact facilitate facilitate flexibility. Finally, Rob, is there any chance of gaining control? I mean, can we have an Uber module that would allow us to turn the Rube Goldberg workings of our minds into something that's a bit more logical? I think that what I would say to that is there's always the chance that uh, natural selection is going to fashion mechanisms that work better over time. And I think that already the minds we have are incredible. The mind is the most sophisticated machine that we know of. Rob Kurzban, thanks so much for making your modules available to my modules. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Robert Kurzban is Associate Professor of Psychology at the University of Pennsylvania and author of Why Everyone Else is a Hypocrite, Evolution, and the Modular Mind. Luckily, none of that applies to me, but I hope you all enjoyed it. Were you listening, Seth? Well, no, but I'm very comfortable in my own point of view. Well, that's it for our show, Molly. Thanks to help from the brains of Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, Jay Weiler, and Keith Rosendahl. Also, undiluted support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David, the NASA Astrobiology Institute, and the SETI Institute, which produces our program. And thanks, of course, to our listeners. You've been listening to Skeptic Check, Diluted Thinking. We welcome your comments. If you're so inclined, please visit our Are We a blog on our website or our Facebook page. Skeptic Check is brought to you thanks to a generous grant from the Trimberger Family Foundation. At the Trimberger Family Foundation, we hold that skepticism is a lamp that lights the way to truth. You don't need to be a scientist to hold that lamp. Look for evidence. Keep on thinking. Trimberger.org. Now you can have Are We Alone at your fingertips. Just download our groovy new app for your iPhone or Android. Stream our latest shows and get bonus interviews and other content to boot. Booking for something to impress friends and visitors? Check out the MoMA gift shop. Or go to the SETI store at setistore.org and pick up an Are We Alone mug, good for holding liquids. And pens. Also, remember we appreciate your comments on iTunes. Keep them coming. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.